Anyway, Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Um, New Year's a good time, isn't it? It's a, it's a time when we do some reflecting on what's gone well in the past year and what hasn't and where things are at in our lives and so on, maybe our hopes and dreams for the year to come. And one element of that is, what is God saying to us for 2018? Maybe you've already found yourself asking that question, what is God saying? So over the Christmas break, I was praying about what to speak about this week, and I was asking him that question, what is it that you want to say to us, Lord, for the new year? And obviously, I wanted him to give me something deeply profound and meaningful, uh, some word from the Lord that would really, really be good for everyone today. But I wasn't really getting anything back. I started exploring a few ideas of things I thought that he might be saying, but I didn't really have any peace about any of them. None of them kind of felt right. And then one day last week, I was asking the Lord again, and I felt I should go and have a look at a little book that we have at home. It's written by a great guy who's one of the lecturers at London School of Theology, which is where Lynn and I did our master's degrees, and Lynn also did her Bachelor of Theology degree as well. And his name is Conrad Gempf. He was also, uh, as well as a lecturer, he was also one of the uh, advisors to the committee that produced the NIV Bible translation. So Conrad definitely knows his stuff. Anyway, so I dug out his book, and I probably hadn't looked at it for 10 years or so. And in the introduction, Conrad says, we're so used to thinking of Jesus as a great teacher. Even many people who wouldn't call themselves Christians think of him as a great teacher. And we tend to think of a great teacher as someone who has this vast store of knowledge, pearls of wisdom to deliver as we hang on their every word. We can almost visualize his disciples, he says, with their pencils and notebooks as they try to get all this great teaching down as Jesus is speaking. And I thought, that's right, Conrad. That's exactly how we are at the start of this new year. We want to know what Jesus is saying to us pens and paper at the ready, so to speak. And then Conrad says something rather surprising. He says if we just look at the first gospel, the gospel of Mark, the first gospel to be written, there are 67 events in Jesus' life in which there's some sort of conversation. And in 50 of those 67, Jesus is asking questions. Three-quarters of the time that Jesus is in a conversation, we find him asking questions, which is really not what you'd expect. Because we're used to thinking of Jesus as someone who gives answers, not someone who asks questions. And even the language we tend to use kind of fits in with that, wanting a word from the Lord or for God to speak. And Conrad explains it like this. Jesus was a bit different from other religious teachers. Moses wanted to tell you the law of God. Prophets wanted to tell you what the Lord was saying. But apparently, if you met Jesus on the street, he was more likely to ask you something than to tell you something. Even when other people asked him a question, he often replied with one of his own. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Whose picture is on the coin? On what grounds should divorce be permitted? What does Moses command you? By what authority do you do these things? 
By what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? Questions and more questions. And Conrad says he he began to realize that Jesus may not have been the great teacher that I thought he was, or at least not the way that I reckoned greatness in teachers. And the Gospels show us that Jesus is not the superhuman repository of all knowledge that some might expect. Instead, we find a Jesus who asks questions, a whole lot of questions. So I checked out what Conrad was saying, as you do, and he's right. We find the same thing happening in the other Gospels as well. Someone counted that there are 307 questions that Jesus asked. And even if we allow for some repetition in some of the same stories, there's still somewhere between two and three hundred questions, which is pretty amazing. And what's also amazing is that Jesus only directly answers three of the questions that he's asked. So for every question that Jesus answered, he asks a hundred himself. So if that is true of how Jesus related to people in the Gospels, I wonder whether that might be true today as well. I wonder if it's true of how Jesus relates to us now. Maybe when we ask God to speak to us, we should be expecting a question, just as much or maybe more than we're expecting an answer. So this morning, much as I would have liked to have gone up the mountain, as it were, and come back down with God's word for us, a New Year's sermon entitled, what Jesus is saying to us in 2018. Instead, I want us to think about what Jesus might be asking us in 2018. Now, even if you hadn't noticed that characteristic of Jesus before, that he was constantly asking people questions, you will have noticed that he often taught in parables. And the thing about parables is that they are stories that ask questions of the people listening to them. Not so much questions to try to figure out the spiritual point that Jesus is making, but personal questions like, who are you in this story? Now, many Christians assume that Jesus talked in parables to uh, enable ordinary people to understand complicated spiritual truths. But that isn't actually the reason. Conrad Gempf says, It's simply amazing how many great people in the history of Christianity have missed the point of the parables by looking for information, and especially for theology. Because what we find is when the disciples ask Jesus that question, why do you speak to the crowd in parables? He said, it's to keep the things of the kingdom a mystery. And in the NIV, if you you read that passage, it translates the Greek word there as secrets as the secrets of the kingdom. But in English, the word secrets kind of gives the wrong impression. It it suggests some kind of hidden knowledge that only really spiritual people who are really close to God are going to be able to access. And that is called Gnosticism, by the way. And it's one of the oldest Christian heresies in the book. So watch out for anyone today trying to tell you that there's a higher and deeper secret spiritual knowledge of God that only very spiritual people have access to. Because our God is not a God who keeps hidden secrets for an elite few. And the Greek word here is mysterion, from which we get our English word mystery. And most of the time in the New Testament, that's how it's translated. 
But if you think about it, a secret is very different from a mystery. Who likes mystery dramas on television? Yeah, a few, yeah. Lynn and I do, um, especially murder mysteries. But, you know, box sets should come with a health warning, shouldn't they? They can seriously damage your sleep. When you hear yourself saying, let's just watch one more episode, shall we? The alarm bells should definitely be ringing. So God is definitely saying that to you this morning, trust me. Anyway, in our murder mystery, it's not so much that the clues to solve it are secret. In fact, it's usually that the clues were there all the time. We just didn't see their significance to begin with. And what does that great detective always do? Asks lots of questions. And when Jesus taught in parables, he, he wasn't painting a picture of something with secrets that only a spiritual elite could find out. He was painting a picture of a mystery that anyone with a passion for God could find out if they were willing to invest the time. Not if they were only interested in soundbite Christianity or Twitter Christianity. You know the kind of thing, speak to me, Lord, but please keep it to 140 characters because I'm short of time. When he asked questions in parables, Jesus was offering an invitation and a challenge to think about it, to talk about it, to grapple with it, and to ask lots of questions about it for those who cared enough to invest their time in the things of God. A guy called Martin Copenhaver says this, Contrary to how Jesus often is portrayed, he does not offer spiritual tips. He does not give us a neat list of ten ways we can be closer to God. He does not provide easy answers. Instead, he asks hard questions. He is not the ultimate answer man, but more like the great questioner. I wonder what our expectation is of the teaching on Sunday mornings. A few spiritual tips to take away. Ten easy ways to be closer to God. A kind of Christianized version of Oprah Winfrey. If so, the chances are that if we'd been in the crowds listening to Jesus, most of the time we'd probably have come away a bit disappointed. We'd have said, the teaching here isn't simple enough and practical enough. I think I'll try a different rabbi or go to a different synagogue. I don't want to think about it and talk about it, and grapple with it, and ask lots of questions about it during the week after I leave church on Sunday mornings. I want to forget about it until I come back for ten more easy ways to be closer to God next Sunday. Now, I don't know about you, but the reason many Christians don't try to share their faith is because they're worried that they won't have the answers to people's questions because they assume that if I haven't got great answers to my friends' questions, then they won't become a Christian. We think we've got to answer their questions first, and that once they've stopped having questions, then they can become a Christian, because some people assume that having questions is the opposite to having faith, that you can't have faith and questions at the same time. But you know, the the opposite of faith isn't having questions. The opposite of faith is unbelief. And unbelief is a deliberate decision to completely close our mind 
to the possibility of something. The language of unbelief is must be and can't be and I'm not listening. Like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, I'm not listening. That's the opposite of faith. You see, the Christian faith is not in danger from good people with good attitudes asking good questions. And that's one of the reasons why connect groups that we talked about a moment ago are so great because they're the perfect place to do that, to have those conversations. I think Christian faith is more in danger from well-meaning Christians trying to sell implausible answers to people's good questions or trying to close their questions down. Now, there was a man called Anselm who was a very famous theologian of his day and he was Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. And he famously defined the Christian life as faith-seeking understanding. And by faith-seeking understanding, he didn't mean trying to replace faith with knowledge. In fact, he said that faith isn't just believing what we ought to believe. So by faith-seeking understanding, what he meant was something like this. Starting with a belief in God and a love for God, and then going on a lifetime journey towards a deeper understanding of that God, which, of course, must include asking lots of good questions along the way. Because, you know, if we don't have questions, then we're never going to learn, are we? And if we don't inhabit a world where questions aren't just okay, but welcomed and encouraged, then we're never going to be able to relate to the world of those who do. So in the pages of the New Testament, we find this Jesus who specializes in asking people questions, hundreds of them. A Jesus who not only loves to ask lots of questions, but loves to answer other questions with questions himself. So the obvious question, as it were, is why? Why did he ask so many questions? Well, let's, let's start with why he doesn't ask questions. Most of the time, Jesus wasn't asking questions because he was looking for information, like, what time is it? Or, when does the next camel train leave for Damascus? Now, even though in becoming human, Jesus laid aside the divine characteristic of omniscience, which is knowing everything there is to know, just like he laid aside the divine characteristic of omnipresence, which is being everywhere at once. Even though he laid that aside, he wasn't generally looking for information in his questions. And certainly when the resurrected Jesus asks questions of us today, we can be sure that it's not because he's looking for information that he doesn't already know. So I think there are four reasons that Jesus asked people questions in the Gospels. And they're the same four reasons that I think he so often is wanting to ask us questions today. The first is to engage us in a personal conversation. Because conversation is what people do when they have a relationship, isn't it? Because Jesus' kind of teaching wasn't just delivering lectures of impersonal instructions of do this and do that. Or statements of spiritual facts that people could write down in their notebooks and take away. Most of his teaching was relational, engaging people in two-way conversation. Because the difference is that with a lecture, like I'm basically 
doing now, it's easy to take it or leave it, isn't it? It doesn't require any particular response. It's a one-way communication. But when someone asks you a personal question by name, it's very different. When Jesus says, Steve, or Valerie, or Lynn, or Andy, can I ask you a personal question? Then it's much harder to ignore him or assume that he isn't speaking to me. He's just speaking to the crowd in general. And then once Jesus has posed the question, I think the second reason is to invite us to think about the implications of how we answer it. You see, if Jesus is just making a statement to the crowd along the lines of, love the Lord your God with all your heart, then people can write it down and they can add it to Jesus' list of teachings. But when Jesus asks someone personally, do you love me with all your heart, as he did with Peter in John chapter 21, then that takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? Just like in Peter's conversation, yes, Lord, I do love you, comes with a whole heap of implications flowing from that. Because throughout the Bible, in good Jewish thinking, love wasn't just a feeling in your heart. Love was a doing word. Jesus said that whether we love him isn't just a decision in our heads, do I or don't I, or whether we've updated our Facebook status to in a relationship, From Jesus' point of view, whether we love him is defined by what we do as a consequence. John Wimber famously said, if we want to know who or what we love, all we need to do is look in our diaries and our bank accounts to see where we invest our time and our money. And then the third reason that I'd rather not include, but it is clearly there in the Gospels, is to irritate us. Sometimes, uh, just as, uh, sometimes Jesus needs to ask us questions that irritate us to get our attention. Just like sometimes things have to go wrong in life to get our attention. And you know, the way I think that we should look at it is like a, a grain of sand that gets stuck in an oyster shell. And what happens is that grain of sand irritates the oyster tissue. And over time, that irritation becomes a pearl. So no irritation, no pearl. And ironically, what happens is that the oyster reacts to that grain of sand and treats it like a hostile invader, and it covers it with layers of the same material that originally created its shell. And it's that that makes the irritation into a pearl. Sometimes Jesus needs to get inside our shell, as it were, with his questions. So the thing is this, are we going to allow those questions to become a pearl in our life or just be irritated by them, treat them as hostile and try to resist them? And here's a little bit of a litmus test. If you think that something that you feel Jesus may be asking you as a question right now is irritating, then it may well be that you're onto something. And then the fourth and final reason that I think Jesus asks so many questions is to challenge us to act on the implications of our answer, to do something as a consequence. You may remember in the book of James in the New Testament, uh, James was the brother of Jesus and the 
leader of the early church in Jerusalem, James says this, don't just listen to God's word, don't just be hearers of the word, in other words, you must do what it says, be doers of the word as well. Otherwise, he said, you're only fooling yourselves. All the prayer in the world, all the Christian books in the world, all the podcasts in the world, all the theology in the world, all the Christian conferences and church services and sermons and the whole lot, it's all just fooling ourselves if it doesn't impact what we do in our lives as a consequence. So when Jesus asks us a question, it's personal to us. He asks us by name. It's part of a personal conversation that he wants to engage in with us. It comes with an invitation to think about the implications of our answer and then a challenge to act, to do something about those implications. And the more irritating we find Jesus' question to be, the more that we may be onto something. Because when Jesus asks us a personal question, it's so much harder to ignore than a preacher in a service or to treat them as something that's obviously just for the person sitting next to me. So in the time that we've got left, I'd just like to have a very quick look at one of the questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels. Now obviously, choosing one's not particularly easy because we've got 300 or so to choose from. So I thought it would be good to try to choose one that wasn't just a question for Jesus' disciples 2,000 years ago, but one that may also be a question that he's asking us today. Now, there's obviously uh, a lot of candidates for the one we choose. Matthew 5, if you only love those who love you, what reward is there for that? If you're only kind to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Matthew 16, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Mark 2, why are you thinking these things? And maybe especially John 21 that we mentioned just now. Do you love me? You know, when Jesus asked Peter that question, he had to repeat it three times while Peter struggled with the implications. Do you love me? And all of those are questions that Jesus may be asking us now. Maybe one of those is something that you know that Jesus is asking you now. But the one that I want us to look at, which we'll close with, is maybe the most significant question in the Gospels. And it's to do with who Jesus is. It's part of a conversation that we find in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Here's a collated version that we can read together. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Come back to life, in other words. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Actually, you can see I'm cheating just a little bit by saying one question because it's really one question in two parts. Jesus starts with the question, who am I? And then he narrows it down to who am I to you? Who do people say I am? Who do the crowds say I am? 
who do you say I am? And we can see in this little story, this little conversation, how Jesus changes the question away from some hypothetical piece of information to do with what everyone else had to say about Jesus, which, quite frankly, I don't think he was in the least bothered about. But he changes the emphasis to the question that he really does want to ask them, which is, who do you say I am? And he invites them to act on the implications of that answer. And we can see in in the conversation how when it's just a kind of academic question of who do people say he is, it doesn't really have any impact on their lives. Their answer doesn't really go any further than, isn't that interesting? But when Jesus moves the question from who am I in an academic sense to who am I to you in a personal sense, suddenly there are huge implications. Because who am I to you, is a whole different ballgame, isn't it? It's no longer just a technical question or a transactional question. It's personal and it's relational. It reminds me of someone who once said this. The gospel isn't, would you like to make Jesus Lord? You can't make Jesus Lord because he's Lord already. The gospel is, what are you going to do about it? So Peter says you're the Messiah and the reason Jesus uh, warns them not to tell anyone is because there were some very different ideas going around about who the Messiah would be and what he would do and what he wouldn't do. And Jesus didn't intend to be the kind of Messiah who was defined by what people thought the Messiah should be or shouldn't be. Just like we don't want to be the kind of church that's defined by what people think a church should be or shouldn't be. And then when Peter answers the question, he doesn't just offer up one piece of information. You're the Messiah. He says you're the son of the living God as well. Now we need to remember that there was no general expectation in Israel at this time that the Messiah would be divine. That God would in some way be personified in the Messiah. The idea wasn't completely unknown, but it's not something that the crowds would have picked up on. So this was a major revelation and it was triggered by Jesus asking a personal question, engaging them in conversation, inviting them to reflect on the implications of their answer and then finally challenging them to act on those implications. And the way that Jesus framed that question to them is the same way that he frames that question to us now. And basically he's saying, I'm not really interested in who everyone else here thinks I am or what I mean to them. Because the question I'm asking you isn't for general information or for an opinion poll. The question I'm asking is personal to you. It comes with your name attached to it. Who do you say I am? Who am I to you? And when you answer my question, says Jesus, I want you to think about the implications of how you've answered him. What are you going to do about him? 